we have been looking at this text by the first Panchen Lama called a root text for the precious Gelu Kagyu tradition of Mahamudra. And we saw that after his uh, salutation verses and his presentation of what the subject matter of this text is going to be and the lineage in which it comes from, the Panchen Lama starts his discussion. And in the traditional manner, he divides his presentation with the preparatory practices, the actual methods, and the concluding procedures. Then the preparatory practices are what we discussed yesterday. And we saw as preparation, we need to have a very strong taking of safe direction, of refuge. And a very sincere bodhicitta aim. We want to be able to benefit everybody and bring everybody to liberation and enlightenment. And in order to do that, we focus on our not yet happening enlightenment, which nevertheless can happen on the basis of our Buddha natures and a great deal of hard work. And we aim to achieve that, to make that not yet happening enlightenment into a presently happening enlightenment. With the intention to help others as much as possible along the way, but to really fully help everybody as much as is actually possible once we actually have achieved that goal.
и мы стремимся приносить максимально возможную пользу всем без исключения живым существам по ходу нашего следования по этому духовному пути, настолько, насколько мы можем, и чтобы в конце, став просветленными существами, принести им максимально возможную пользу. Bring about the attainment of the, of the presently happening enlightenment on our mental continuums. We need to also, as a preparation, try to build up as much as possible the two networks of positive force and deep awareness. And purify ourselves as much as possible at this stage of our mental obstacles and obscurations. And what's very important is to do these two processes of building up the networks and purifying the obstacles with uh, that safe direction and bodhicitta motivation. That means having a very clear intention, setting motivation beforehand, before doing anything positive, and dedicating the positive force of it afterwards. This is uh, because if we think of our minds like a computer, then the default setting for anything that we do is samsara. So, if we do something positive, like helping others, or even meditating, but we don't have a clear intention and dedication toward either liberation or enlightenment, then all that that does is build up good karma, positive karma, for improving samsara. Uh, 
That means that we will experience as a result happier, nicer situations in samsara, but with all the problems and shortcomings that come from that. Uh, the samsaric happiness never lasts and it never is satisfying. We never can have enough. На практике это будет означать, что мы будем испытывать различные сансарные блага, сансарные счастья, сансарные удовольствия, как созревающие результаты этой кармы, но пакетом с этим будут приходить и все сансарные аспекты страдания, а именно неудовлетворенность, омраченность изначальная всякого сансарного счастья и так далее. Likewise, if we study and learn about voidness and even meditate on it without the proper intention and dedication toward liberation or enlightenment, then likewise it will just contribute to improving samsara. We will be able to speak cleverly about voidness. And it might help us in a psychotherapeutic sense to uh, minimize a little bit of some of the problems that we, emotional problems that we face. But nevertheless, it's not going to get rid of them. We still are going to be stuck in samsara. But it's very important to keep in mind that Buddhism is not about improving samsara. Buddhism is not a form of psychotherapy. И здесь очень важно понимать, что буддизм не является неким средством улучшения амелиорации сансары. Буддизм не является некой экзотической формой психотерапии. Буддизм is all about gaining liberation or enlightenment. Буддизм направлен на избежание сансары, а именно на достижение нирваны или освобождения и достижение состояния Будды или просветления. That's very clear from Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths. Couldn't be more clear in terms of true stoppings and true paths. That's why Buddhism is actually quite difficult to follow sincerely because in order to really follow it sincerely, we have to be very convinced that liberation and enlightenment exist, they're possible, and that we can actually attain that. That's not so easy to understand. In fact, it's not easy at all to even understand what liberation or enlightenment mean. Because 
After all, only a Buddha can really understand what it means to be a Buddha. So, what hope do we have? <laughs> but we can get some sort of idea of what it might be like, and on the basis of that, aim toward achieving it. Но, как минимум, мы можем понять, что это такое примерно, какого это рода состояния, и на основании этого ограниченного понимания устремиться к его достижению. But the more accurate an idea we have of liberation and enlightenment, the more realistic our following of the path toward those will be. И чем глубже, чем реалистичнее, чем полнее будет наше понимание того, чем является освобождение и просветление, and so this depends very much on understanding and actually being able to recognize in our own experience the nature of the mind. If we speak about samsara, if we speak about liberation, if we speak about enlightenment, all three situations are things that are experiences. We experience them. They're experiences in terms of mind. There are situations of the mind and derivative from that will be situations of the body and speech. Therefore, in order to really, even from the early stages on, aim for liberation and enlightenment, we need to recognize at least and acknowledge the importance of understanding the nature of the mind and being able to recognize it and work with it. И поэтому даже на самых ранних стадиях духовной практики, устремляясь к таким целям, как освобождение и проседление, необходимо хорошо разобраться, представлять себе, давать себе отчет о том, что такое природа нашего ума. And then when we work on building up these networks of positive force and uh, deep awareness, avoidness, we need to do that with the intention to that the positive force from that and the understanding from that act as a cause for our achievement of liberation. If it's only for that, if we only dedicate it for that, that's all that it will contribute to. Or we have the intention and dedicate it for enlightenment with bodhicitta, and then it will contribute to that. И затем, работая над двумя этими сетями накоплений, да, или собиранием двух накоплений, накоплением благой заслуги или благого потенциала от различных а, добрых дел, 
и накопление, постижение, накопление знаний, понимания реальности. Работая над ними, необходимо четко осознавать причиной чего, причиной какого результата мы хотим эти накопления сделать. Хотим ли мы их сделать причиной или видеть в качестве причины освобождения, то есть достижения индивидуального освобождения санкции или нирваны, но тогда надо понимать, что они только ей не могут стать, никогда не превзойдут их в качестве причины, они станут именно причиной достижения нами освобождения. Или же мы направляем их в разряд причин для достижения просветления. Therefore, if again we can use the analogy of a computer, it's as though there are three folders on our hard drive in the mind. There's the samsara folder, there's the nirvana folder, and there's the enlightenment folder. And when we are going to do some sort of positive thing or meditation, the intention is opening up one of those folders, and then the dedication is saving it in one of those folders. And if we are not sure to open up the enlightenment folder and save it in the enlightenment folder, the default setting is it's going to go into the samsara folder. So we don't want that to happen. If it does happen, it's not the most disastrous thing in the world, but all that's going to do is improve our samsara. И опять же, продолжая аналогию с компьютером, мы можем проиллюстрировать, как происходит посвящение заслуги. На компьютере нашего ума существует три таких виртуальных папки. Папка сансара, папка нирваны, индивидуальное освобождение и папка состояния Будды или просветления. Совершив некое благое действие на уровне накопления позитивного потенциала или на уровне накопления постижения знания, мы всякий раз направляем, сохраняя его в одну из этих папок. Предустановки нашего компьютера таковы, что если мы сохраняем по умолчанию, то это всегда будет папка сансара, хотим мы того или нет. Если же мы декларируем направление этой благодатной на другие цели, то это может быть выбор между папкой нирвана и папкой состояния Будды просветления. Если мы сохраняем по умолчанию папку в этом нет какого-то великого, так сказать, греха или ужасного события, но тем не менее это именно то, что происходит. Заслуга это не пойдет ни во вторую, ни в третью папку. Поэтому всегда нужно должное посвящение заслуги на определенные цели. Most of us are not even aware that there's anything other than the samsara folder. This is why we need to really start to investigate and learn about the nature of the mind because only when we do that are we going to discover that actually there is a liberation and enlightenment folder. They might be pretty much empty now, but at least those folders are there. But we're only going to know that they're there if we start to investigate and learn about the nature of the mind. Но ситуация такова, что для человека начинающего даже само существование папок с названием нирвана и просветление не факт, не известно. Для них существует лишь одна папка конца. Поэтому необходимо изначально увериться, понять, открыть для себя существование этих двух других папок. И открытых мы убедимся, что наверняка они совершенно пусты. Но тем не менее нужно отдавать себе отчет в существовании и научиться ими пользоваться и сохранять also, if we can continue the analogy of a computer, although of course it's not an exact equivalent, but if we can continue that, then for most of us, our samsara folder is so full that there is hardly any room for putting things into the 
liberation or enlightenment folder. So we have to do some purification. We have to clean out a little bit uh, from the samsara folder. В нашей папке сансары ситуация, обычная ситуация среднего человека такова, что папка сансара переполнена сохраненными там файлами, сохраненными там материалами, и она практически не оставляет места двум вновь открытым нами папкам нирваны и просветления. И для того, чтобы иметь какое-то место на жестком диске, куда мы можем сохранять эти благие следы, благие потенциалы двух накоплений, мы должны поудалять изрядное количество файлов из папки сансары, то есть почистить ее. А для этого необходимо выполнять практику очищения, о которой мы также говорили. And actually our samsara folder is mostly filled with spam. И ситуация будет такова на практике, что наша папка сансары окажется заполнена до краев по большей части спамом. Complete garbage. And even if we can manage to delete some of the span, more and more constantly is going to come in. With every span like thought that we have, and we seem to have that all day long, for at least most of us, just keeps on filling our samsara file with more and more junk, junk mail. (laughs) But at least if we can clean out some of this spam with like Vajrasattva meditation and so on. There's a little bit more space on the hard drive to throw some stuff into the uh, enlightenment folder. And this is the analogy that uh, we can use here to understand this process of purification. But it's really only with the non-conceptual cognition of voidness that we're going to be able to actually delete the samsara folder. Но Not just temporarily uh, emptied a little bit. Mm. And uh, actually, it's only when we're able to stay with this non-conceptual cognition of voidness all the time that we really delete the folder completely, not just throw it into the, uh, what is it called, the waste bin? The, uh, I've forgotten what it's called. Anyway, not, not just into the uh, garbage bin, the trash bin. The trash bin. 
yeah, the trash can. We also saw that in addition to all of these preparatory practices, we need to make very heartfelt requests to the our root guru, the one that gives us the most inspiration, so that we really open up fully and then we imagine that the root guru dissolves into us. And by doing this, we, in addition to the bodhicitta motivation, increase the intensity of the mind so that it becomes a little bit easier to be able to see the nature of the mind because we have increased the intensity of the mind both as the object to observe and as the subject that is observing it. Then, as for the actual basic uh, methods, the first pension lama points out that there are many ways of asserting Mahamudra, but uh, we can speak of it primarily in terms of two divisions of it, the Sutra tradition and the Tantra tradition. When we speak about Mahamudra in the Tantra context, we're speaking about it in the context of the fourth or highest class of Tantra practice, Anutra Yoga Tantra. Now we need to bear in mind that it's only the Kagyu and Geluk traditions that assert that there are both Sutra and Tantra types of Mahamudra practice. According to the Sakya tradition, there's only Tantra practice of Mahamudra. Uh, 
и уровня танки. Традиция Сахи говорит о существовании Мухаммуды лишь в традиции танки. Now, as for the difference between these two divisions of Mahamudra practice, it has to do with which level of consciousness or mind we are going to examine and focus on in terms of its nature. In the Anutra Yoga Tantra teachings, I'll just call them Tantra teachings for short, there is a presentation of three levels of mind. We can speak about the coarse level, the subtle level, and the subtlest level. The coarse level of mind or awareness however we want to speak about it, is what is involved with sense cognition. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and feeling physical sensations. The subtle level is dealing with our usual level of mental consciousness, both conceptual and non-conceptual. We speak about the coarse level of sense uh, cognition that's always non-conceptual. By the way, just very briefly, when we speak about conceptual cognition, we're talking about cognition of something through a category, it's usually a category. Category could be looking at this object in terms of the category table or looking at this figure in front of me in terms of the category of human being or woman. These are categories. These are uh, categories concerning uh, objects. We can also perceive things or cognize things in terms of categories regarding qualities like good, bad, red, black, 
Мы можем воспринимать объекты категориями подобного рода, можем воспринимать объекты через призму категории качества, как то плохой, хороший, красивый, некрасивый, красный, черный и так далее. Conceptual cognition can also be through the medium of what we would call a concept such as space or voidness. Space. But we won't go into that in detail. That's rather complex. But non-conceptual cognition is not through the medium of a category. To say it just briefly. Also, there are various levels of conceptual mind. We have personal concepts of things. We have uh, more general ones. More general ones. Everybody would have, even animals. Whereas uh, more personal, specific ones, we might have only in terms of particular human lifetime. But uh, in any case, the subtlest level of mind is what is known as the clear light level. And this is the level which is more subtle than the coarse or subtle level. So it certainly is more subtle than our sense consciousness, our ordinary mental consciousness, more subtle than any conceptual level. It is more subtle than either of those. Well, let me say this in a different way. The various disturbing emotions that we have and the... Uh, Let's just leave it like that. The various disturbing emotions that we have can occur with either the coarse, the gross consciousness or coarse consciousness and the subtle consciousness and the, the subtlest level is more subtle than that. So it is free naturally of disturbing emotions. But 
грубом, так и на уровне тонком, но на уровень тончайший они не попадают, и он свободный. And when we speak about appearances of true existence and grasping for true existence, these are things which occur on these grosser levels. The gross level and the subtle level make appearances of true existence and the subtle level, conceptual level, may, uh, grasps for that true existence, in other words, believes it. Both uh, make appearances of true existence, but it's only the uh, subtle conceptual level that actually uh, believes in it, grasps it to correspond to how things really exist. To put it in very simple terms, the grosser levels of mind make things appear in an impossible way. Like, for instance, uh, the analogy that I often use is ping-pong balls makes things appear as though there's a line around them and there they are existing by themselves, like a ping-pong ball, just there. Представляет вещи нашего уму как истинно существующие. Приводя такой популярный пример, я говорю о теннисном мячике, мячике шарики для настольного тенниса, когда он предстает нам как нечто очерченное какой-то жирной линии, существующее само в себе, само по себе истинно там. Appearance making of true existence. And then what's called grasping for true existence is, without getting too complicated with it, it actually is believing that the way that things appear corresponds to the way they actually exist. So that's conceptual when you actually believe that. Please bear in mind that I'm explaining the Gluck position on this regarding the Prasangika tenet system. There are different uh, interpretations of this in the non-Gluck schools. But in any case, everybody agrees that the clear light mind, the subtlest level, is more subtle than these levels in which the appearance making and grasping for true existence occur. It doesn't do that. 
agree. Everybody agrees. Mm-hmm. And this clear light level underlies every moment of our experience, of our cognition of things in all our lifetimes, during death time even, even during enlightenment. And when we speak about this division between Sutra and Tantra Mahamudra, Sutra Mahamudra is a practice to identify and uh, understand the nature of the two grosser levels of mind and the Tantra practice of Mahamudra is to try to recognize and work with the nature of the subtlest clear light level of mind. Obviously the Tantra one is much, much more difficult to do. First Penchen Lama says that uh, he gives the scriptural sources for these two traditions of Mahamudra and then he says that he will explain the sutra method. And the term which is used here for recognizing the mind, the word recognize, it's an interesting word. It means actually, I mean, it's sometimes translated as introduce as well, motu in Tibetan, and actually it means to literally meet the face of the mind. So when we read in translation, the guru, the lama, helps, uh, introduces us to the nature of our mind. We have to understand what that means. It's not saying, you know, Sasha, here's your mind, mind, here's Sasha, and you exchange uh, calling cards. 
когда переводится подобное рода объяснение, изложение, зачастую используется на английском термин introduce или на русском как бы представить или познакомить с. Ну, у нас обычно говорится введение, да, природума, или ознакомление. Это именно перевод этого термина, и не следует понимать его, сказали, что лама вводит нас природу ума, или лама знакомит нас природой ума, что происходит нечто такое, что вот Саша это ум, ум это Саша, а мы безвидными карточками and the inspiration that we receive from the root guru, then in an interaction with the teacher, the teacher, that interaction can provide a circumstance in which if we've built up a tremendous amount of positive force and deep awareness, you know, there's building up the networks and the purifying, that will provide the circumstance for us to then actually meet the face of the mind, in other words, we will be able to see it, and we would say in, in English at least recognize it. Recognize is a funny word, because that tends to mean that you've seen it before and then you recognize it again and fit it into the category of what we had before, so that's not quite precise either. Благого потенциала и мудрости, а посредством практики очищения и посредством того вдохновения, которое приходит нам через открытие учителю, совокупность всех этих факторов и такая вдохновляющая фигура учителя могут создать в нашем уме определенное состояние, которое будет наиболее располагающим к узнаванию собственной природы, к тому, чтобы мы увидели ее. То есть это наиболее наиболее благое, позитивное, располагающее к этому состоянию. Именно поэтому мы стремимся выполнить все эти действия. Здесь опять же следует распознавание или узнавание природы ума, не понимать в его прямом смысле, поскольку узнавание полагает некоторое предыдущее знание кого-то или чего-то. И вот, видя вновь, мы вспоминаем и узнаем. Здесь происходит другое действие. In Dzogchen, we have a terminology speaking about how the mind doesn't recognize its own face. And so we need to get the, the, um, the subtlest level of mind. It's not quite exactly the same as the subtlest level, but anyway, Rikpa, to be able to recognize its own face. To see its own face как рикпа или тончайший уровень ума, это не в точности то, что именуем сейчас тончайшим уровнем ума, оно схоже с этим понятием. Рикпа должно узнать собственное лицо, да, или узнать собственный лик. Now, in terms of meeting the face of our, of our mind, on these grosser levels, again, we have to identify what aspect of mind are we trying to see the face of, or we'll use the word recognize in a loose sense here. Now, we can speak about primary consciousness and subsidiary 
consciousness or mental factors is another way of translating that. Primary consciousness, if we can use an example of a chandelier here, would be the big light bulb in the middle of the chandelier, and the subsidiary awarenesses are the little light bulbs around it. The little light bulbs only go on when the big light bulb is on. They can't work by themselves. That's why they're subsidiary to the primary one. When we call it mental factor, which is much easier to say, we somehow can lose that sense of the fact that they really are subsidiary to the primary thing. They can't be there by themselves. That's clear from the Tibetan and Sanskrit term. No. Now, what we want to be able to recognize is the nature of primary consciousness. Therefore, we have to know what is the difference between primary consciousness and subsidiary awareness. Mm. Primary consciousness is in the Prasangika system of six types. There is eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, uh, taste, tongue, body consciousness, which is consciousness of physical sensations, not just uh, the feeling of a rough or smooth cloth, but also hot and cold and motion, any sort of physical sensation, and then mental consciousness. Now, if we look at the Tibetan description of this, the primary consciousness and the subsidiary awarenesses, first of all, all focus on the same object and they work through the same um, cognitive sensors, like for instance the photosensitive cells of the eyes, and there's a whole list of things that they share in common. Mm-hmm. 
вторичными ментальными функциями в том, что они оперируют через какие-то сенсорные органы уже из плотной материи, как то фотоэлементы в нашем глазе и так далее. We talk about sensors, we're not talking about the gross organ of the eye. We're talking about the very tiny photosensitive cells within the eye. That's actually what's involved with cognition. Or the sound sensitive cells of the ears. We're talking about tiny little cells. Some people translate them as sense powers, but that's very inaccurate because power is some sort of abstract thing. We're talking specifically about little cells. But in any case, the primary consciousness is aware of just the, I translate it as, essential nature of the object, this mole. Essential nature of the object, which means what type of object is it? Is it a sight? Is it a sound? Is it a smell? Is it a taste? Is it a tactile sensation or is it a thought? And then the subsidiary awarenesses, the whole cluster of them, they focus on the same object and they assist the primary consciousness and so they do various technical functions like concentration and interest, these type of things also add emotional qualities to it, compassion or anger. They're all the subsidiary things that go together. Distinguishing one object from another object, etc. Emotions are distinguishing that an object is this and not that. If, again, we go to the analogy of a computer, the primary consciousness is aware of what kind of data is this? Is it uh, audio data? Is it music data? Is it video data? Is it text data? 
and then the subsidiary awarenesses reads that data. So obviously the primary consciousness is the main thing because in a computer the data has to be put into the right program so that it can read the data correctly. You can't just read data without putting it into the right program, an audio program, a video program, a text program. So the mind works in a similar fashion. Because obviously if we think in terms of the Western description of the mind and brain, all the information is just electrical and chemical impulses, isn't it? So we need to somehow be able to sort out are these electrical impulses giving us visual information or audio information and so on. So this is what we're trying to recognize is the primary consciousness and we want to recognize both its superficial or conventional nature as well as its deepest void nature. Now this is not easy. Not easy at all. We need to be able to recognize it in our own experience every moment because actually this is going on all the time. Therefore, because it is so difficult to actually recognize, even though it's just right there, it's like our face is there all the time, but we can't see our face, can we? Unless we have a mirror or something like that. Actually, it's a very interesting thing. Our face, what our face looks like, where, although our face is there all the time, we really don't stay aware at all of what our face is looking like, do we? 
Unless we're extremely vain and always looking in a mirror and makeup and so on. But it's there all the time. Likewise, our mind is functioning all the time. Hmm. Now, Pension Lama mentions that there are various different traditions which are all intending for the same point to be able to recognize the conventional and deepest nature of the mind and he lists a whole group of different traditions that we find in the various Tibetan lineages. But the Pension Lama concludes with a very strong uh, advocacy of non-sectarianism. He says, nevertheless, when scrutinized by a yogi, learned in scripture and logic, and experienced in meditation, their definitive meanings are all seen to come to the same intended point. Но затем он делает важное такое заявление в духе сектарной традиции, говоря о том, что как бы то ни было, когда исследуется йогином следующим писанием и логике и имеющим глубокий и богатый опыт в медитации, их их глубинное или как их достоверное значение или их подлинный смысл будет увиден этим или постигнут этим человеком как одно и то же, как единое Definitive meaning is literally the meaning that one is led to with the teachings. The final point that you're led to. And what Buddha intended and what all the great masters intended with these various methods was that it comes to the final point. The final point is you all, everybody recognizes the same nature of the mind because we all have mind with the same nature and on the basis of that we're able to achieve enlightenment. Тот подлинный или дефинитивный смысл это то, что имели в виду, подразумевали в Будде, это то, что подразумевали великие мастера прошлого, когда давали нам эти наставления, ибо все эти наставления, все эти учения медитации призваны привести нас к достижению природы нашего ума, которая едина и одинакова для всех медитативных переживаний, в конце концов, поскольку все мы обладаем одинаковым умом, и природа его идентична, поэтому это является дефинитивным или then Penchalama also mentions that within the sutra tradition there are two methods of practice 
Эта тема, автор говорит о том, что в традиции Судра существует два видения практики. The uh, first is meditating on the mind, it says literally in the text, in other words, uh, trying to get single-minded concentration, or even deeper than that, shamatha, which is a stilled, settled state of mind, on the, focused on the conventional nature of the mind, and then after that, getting the correct view of the voidness of the mind. The other method is first getting at least, you know, some level of a correct view of voidness and then focusing, uh, gaining single-minded, well, it's not just single-minded concentration, I shouldn't say that, getting shine, shamatha, stilled and settled state of mind on the basis of conventional nature of the mind. Итак, первым способом является медитация, направленная медитация на относительной и условной природе нашего ума. И это в худшем случае, а в лучшем случае это полностью развитая шаматка или удовлетворенное пребывание ума. И затем изучение пустотности, постижение пустотности и затем уже медитация с помощью постигнутой и достигнутой шаматки на абсолютной природе ума или на окончающей природе ума, на его пустотности. И второй способ это изначальное ознакомление с the second type is the first you learn about the first voidness and then work to get the shamatha on the, na- the conventional nature of the mind. Ознакомление или достижение понимания пустотности предварительное и затем перенос этого понимания по медитацию и медитация развития шаматхи направленного сосредоточения ума в отношении этой пустотности и медитации. When we talk about Either single-minded concentration or absorbed concentration, I like to translate it as. That is a state of mind completely free of mental dullness or flightiness of mind, mental agitation. В которых отсутствуют какие-либо ментальные возбуждения или ментальная etc. So that is added to this absorbed concentration. That's shamatha. Like an athlete feels fit or 
и это, это выражается, но это на уровне физического и ментального блаженства присутствуют определенные факторы, которые наполняют нас энергией, силой, решимостью и способностью сидеть и медитировать столько, сколько это потребуется, без какого-либо дискомфорта на ментальном или физическом уровне. То есть мы полностью владеем собой медитацией и получаем от этого блаженство удовольствия. Это именуется на тибетском Шинджан, это как бы работоспособность, натренированность, фитнес по-английски. И э, определяется он как лесу румва, как способность... Лесу румва, suitable to doing work. Способен или готов выполнять работу, то есть полная работоспособность. Шинджан, супер тренд. Literally. Okay. Should point out that since very often we have misconceptions about this, that we have many cognitions simultaneously. After all, when we're with somebody, we can both see them and hear them at the same time, can't we? Запомните, отметьте, что у нас параллельно может присутствовать в уме несколько восприятий. Ведь когда мы, например, находимся с кем-то рядом, мы видим этого человека и можем одновременно его испытывать никак. So when we have absorbed concentration in meditation on some object, and even when we have shamatha on that object, that doesn't mean that we don't also see the wall in front of us. We do see the wall in front of us. Other cognitions are occurring at the same time. It's just that there's no mental wandering toward that. You don't pay attention to it. И то же самое происходит и во время медитативного погружения, будь то даже шамах, когда мы двоенное пребывание. Если мы пребываем в таком сосредоточении ума, это не значит, что все наши а, другие восприятия отключены. Это не значит, что мы не видим стены перед нами. Это значит лишь то, что мы, что ум наш не устремляется к этим восприятиям и не вблуждает, не отвлекается на них. Окей. Now, Vipassana is an exceptionally perceptive state of mind, literally. And this is only possible on the basis of shamatha. You can't have Vipassana by itself. If it's Vipassana, it's combined shamatha and Vipassana. If you want to speak about it in a technical way. Говоря о випашине, мы говорим о том, что необходимым ее условием является обретение шамахи. Випашина, по сути, это совмещение чего-то большего с шамахой. Она не может быть без шамахи. Это сверхприятие. What Vipassana does is it adds on top of shamatha a second sense of fitness which is not just the sense of fitness that you can concentrate on anything, but the sense of fitness that you can analyze and understand anything. Випашина же с этим сконцентрированным пучком внимания может бесконечно анализировать, исследовать, углубляясь. Mm. 
So, when it says first, well, also I should add that we can gain shamatha and or vipassana on a wide, wide variety of objects. Vipassana is not just gained in terms of the understanding of voidness. But here we're talking about gaining Vipassana on the basis of a correct view of voidness. So, when it says, first we gain shamatha, the conventional nature of mind, and then you uh, gain the correct view of voidness, first of all, we could gain not only shamatha, but we could gain even vipassana on the conventional nature of the mind. We can gain both shamatha and vipassana on the conventional nature of the mind. We can gain both shamatha and vipassana on the voidness of the mind. So we have to not get confused here about what Tenshin Lama is uh, talking about. We're talking about just trying to understand voidness, the voidness specifically of the mind. And we're talking about gaining shamatha on the conventional nature of the mind. So even if we work on trying to gain the understanding of voidness first, and then get uh, shamatha on the nature of the mind, still we wouldn't get vipassana on the nature of the mind till after we've gotten shamatha. Even if we do the second method of gaining the understanding of voidness first. And then second, gain shamatha on the nature of the mind. On here specifically the conventional nature of the mind. That doesn't mean that we have gained you know, when we gain that initial understanding of voidness, that we've gained vipassana mm-hmm. on the deepest nature of the mind. Mm-hmm. 
тонкой или абсолютной природы ума и его пустотности. Да? То есть это очень концептуальное понимание до того, до развития шаманки не гарантирует нам автоматическое So actually, what we're talking about is a logical debate in terms of when the world is he differentiating here in the text. And I think that uh, the main point is how deeply are we going to try to understand the voidness of the mind and at which stage are we going to do that? In our practice. И так или иначе, здесь uh, вопрос сводится к тому, практики мы будем работать над постижением пустотности ума и постижением его относительной природы. Now, we can work beforehand on the understanding of voidness in general, the voidness of person, voidness of the table. We could also work uh, initially on understanding the voidness of the conventional nature of the mind just based on knowing the definition of the conventional nature of the mind. However, that's quite different from actually being able to focus on that conventional nature of the mind perfectly and then applying our understanding of voidness to that object, that conventional nature of the mind. There's a difference between, let me just say that again, between applying an understanding of voidness to some concept that we have of the conventional nature of the mind and applying it to some you know, the actual conventional nature of the mind that we're actually focused on perfectly. So the method that the Penchen Lama is going to explain here is first recognizing the conventional nature of the mind, gaining shamatha on that, and then on that basis trying to understand the, and focus on the voidness of that conventional nature of the mind. Whether or not you have the pashana on the conventional nature of the mind or not is irrelevant. Тот метод, который объясняет здесь в этом тексте первый панчен лама, состоит в том, что сначала мы выявляем, узнаем относительную природу нашего ума, затем мы развиваем шамаху, то есть умиротворенное пребывание в отношении этого объекта, после чего, концентрируясь на нем, then we work on understanding the voidness of that conventional nature that doesn't mean that we have absolutely no 
understanding or even familiarity with voidness before we gain shamatha, I don't know of anybody who would do that in actual practice. Because most of us would have, you know, a broad array of teachings, at least basic lamrim, that covers all the topics in general. However, in writing a text, you can only explain one at a time. And so here gives the impression that we don't work at all with voidness uh, until we gain shamatha. But uh, in actual practice, hardly anybody would do that. Since it's very difficult to achieve shamatha. However, to understand the voidness of an object, we really need to be able to focus on that object in a very stable way. Otherwise, it's difficult to apply that understanding of voidness to that object. That's why the emphasis here is on gaining at least some sort of mental stability on focusing on the conventional nature of the mind before understanding the voidness of it. Для того, чтобы постичь пустотность некого объекта, необходимо предварительные условия, способность долго и стабильно концентрироваться на этом объекте. Поэтому автор предлагает так, что необходимо прежде научиться стабильно сосредотачиваться на избранном объекте относительно природы нашего ума, а затем постигать его пустотность и последовательность именно такого. Good. Let's take a short break and then we'll continue. Давайте прервемся на 5-10 минут максимум, да? Разомнемся и продолжим. Окей, let's begin our second session. The Pension Lama continues now with his actual description and he first describes the proper seat to sit on for gaining uh, mental stability he calls it here and this uh, and then sitting it on that seat with the proper posture the seat without going into all the details what is usually important on a meditation seat is that the back be slightly raised from the front so that if we have something underneath our behind and our knees are a little bit lower the your legs don't fall asleep so easily не вдаваясь в детали, основным правилом или основным моментом, который следует выполнить 
при э, посадке, э, при выборе сидения для медитации является э, то, что задняя часть вашего тела должна быть прикольной, то есть должна быть подложена под вас какая-то подушка, некое разрешение, чтобы крестец э, ваш был выше колен, чтобы колены немножко были, ноги опущены вниз, так они не будет соскальзывать, и у вас не появится сонливость, и спина будет выгодна. This is particularly helpful when we are sitting in the full posture, which entails what's known in the Hindu yoga systems as the full lotus position. So if we do have that problem of our legs falling asleep, while we're meditating, then can be helpful to put a cushion. The legs falling asleep. When you get that tingling sensation in your in your legs, hmm? then it's a, uh, we can try putting a cushion underneath our behind. Mm-hmm. And the posture, I imagine that most of you are familiar with, it's called the sevenfold posture of Irochana. So our legs are crossed in, in the Buddhist tradition, it's known as the Vajra position, as I said in Hatha Yoga, it's called the full lotus position, and obviously for many of us that's not so easy to do. Therefore, we need to train ourselves very slowly over quite a period of time for our legs to become flexible enough to be able to sit in that posture. If we're unable to sit that way, then the half lotus or just our legs crossed will do. And if we can't sit cross-legged at all, that's rather unfortunate. And in any case, we could still try to do the meditation just sitting in a chair. The main point of the posture is to get the energies flowing in the body in as smooth and harmonious way as possible. The 
amount of conceptual thought and wild thoughts that we have is proportionate to the way in which the to the wildness, let's say, of the way in which the energy is flowing in the body. When we talk about mind, we're speaking about uh, an awareness of something. And there is a certain energy associated with that. And so when the energy, you know, depending on how the energy is flowing in the body, likewise our awareness will be similar. If we're very nervous, we tend to have very worried thoughts, for example. If the energy of the body is calm, the mind tends to be calm. And so this posture is to optimize, at least from the physical side, the smoothness of the flow of energy in the body. The hands are on the upturned feet with the left hand beneath the right and the thumbs touching, forming a triangle near the navel. Now the hands should rest on the on your feet, not hold them up in the air. If you hold them up in the air, the muscles of your arm are tense, and so that's not a very relaxed posture. Our spine and our back needs to be perfectly straight. That's the most important aspect of the whole posture. So even if we're sitting in a chair, sit up straight. The lips need to be relaxed and the teeth not clenched tight. And the tongue needs to uh, touch, just gently touch the upper palate, which is the uh, part of the mouth that's uh, above where the upper teeth are. That helps to retain saliva so we don't the mouth doesn't become dry and it also prevents us from drooling. Uh, 
If there's uh, excessive uh, saliva forming in our mouth, we can swallow, but uh, this position of the tongue should minimize the uh, salivation. Obviously, if we have to swallow all the time, that affects our concentration. The head should be bent slightly forward and down, not all the way touching our chest and not up, but a little bit down. If it's too low, we tend to get dizzy. If it's too high, we tend to get distracted. The eyes are half open, focused, uh, focused uh, loosely in the direction of the tip of the nose. It doesn't mean cross-eyed, just means basically looking down toward the floor. And just loosely focused. You know, uh, in the Tibetan tradition, we're not encouraged to meditate with our eyes closed. Although in some other Buddhist traditions, people do meditate with the eyes closed. If our eyes are closed when we meditate, there's the danger of uh, easily falling asleep. His Holiness points out that if your eyes are closed, you tend to see sort of flashing little dots of light that can be very distracting. In other words, it's easier to not pay attention to the floor in front of you than if your eyes are half open than these little flashing lights that one tends to see when the eyes are closed. Also, my own idea, I haven't seen this in any text, is that if we are practicing as Mahayana practitioners, then if we close our eyes in order to meditate, that builds up a certain tendency of dissociating from everybody around us in order to meditate. That can make an obstacle in terms of applying our meditation in a Mahayana way to actually situations in which we're actually helping others. Also, my own idea, which I didn't see in the text, but as I think it has 
определенный смысл, что закрывая глаза, занимаясь практиками медитациями на пути Махаяны и закрывая глаза, мы подсознательно как-то дистанцируемся или отделяем себя от мира, замыкаемся на себе, в то время как медитация наша имеет цель как раз именно ассоциацию с миром и вовлеченность в мир, в участие в существ, в этом какой-то есть тоже психологическое. In Dzogchen meditation, where similarly we're trying to recognize uh, the nature of the mind, one tends to have, I mean, one is recommended to have the eyes be very intensely focused, although not necessarily, you know, observing the floor in front of you as if you're looking for your contact lens that you dropped. But uh, the eyes should be strongly intense. But here in the Mahamudra practice, uh, that doesn't seem to be indicated. The shoulders need to be straight back and even at the same level as each other. And the elbows slightly bent leaving a small space between the body and arms. And if we add the breathing here, then the breathing needs to be quite natural through the nose, quietly, not forcefully. With the in-breath the same length as the out-breath, neither of them too deep or too shallow, and without holding the breath. Mm. Then, once we're sitting in the proper position, on the proper seat, Panchen Lama says that we need to clear ourselves purely with a round of the nine tastes of breath. This is a type of breathing practice which helps to, in a sense, clear out a little bit of our disturbing states of mind. Now, there are several ways of practicing these nine rounds. We can do this, by the way, before any type of meditation. It's helpful. And it can be done with or without visualization of the energy channels within the body. We can visualize the energy channels whether or not we've received an initiation. 
мы можем визуализировать энергетические каналы собственного тонкого тела, вне зависимости от того, получали ли мы тантрическое освещение или нет. But only if we've received an initiation can we visualize ourselves as a Buddha figure while doing this. Let's say as Yamantika or Chenrezig, one of these, Kala Chakra. So if we uh, are visualizing the energy channels, then we are basically visualizing three channels. So we have the uh, central channel is going basically from the uh, um, well there's several ways of uh, doing this we can have it uh, go from our nose basically over the top of our head and then down by the uh, spine and it ends a little bit below the navel four finger widths below the navel it says but actually if we want to be more precise it ends at uh, the middle of the brow not actually at the nostrils and it's white on the outside and red on the inside now obviously if we get too caught up in the visualizations here that could be an obstacle so this is why they say it can be either with visualization or without visualization then the uh, right channel and, and the that channel is the thickness of a medium-sized bamboo it says so that's maybe I don't know, a couple centimeters wide. Mm. So maybe the size of uh, the small finger of a small person. Mm. Yeah. Then the uh, right channel is... Uh, the right and left channels are thinner and uh, the right one is red the uh, left one is white and it's uh, the thickness they say of a stalk of wheat so it's pretty thin and it's the right and left channels which uh, go a little bit further down beneath the uh, navel and they come up and they these are the ones that actually go out the nostrils and they, uh, they, uh, they, uh, they, uh, 
и начинаются от как раз ноздрей, правой и левой, соответственно. Okay, so now, when we do the, I mean, I find the red and the white a little bit easy to remember, at least in English or in German, because uh, right and red both start with R. I don't know about in Russian, but uh, it's helpful to have some sort of mnemonic device. Otherwise, it's very easy to get this confused. Hmm. Figure out little tricks for helping to remember these sort of visualizations. That's helpful. Okay, now, when doing the, so we're doing, doing nine rounds of breathing. Divided into three groups of three. Okay. When we are, the first three are in the right nostril and out the left. And we imagine now that the right energy channel is inserted into the bottom end of the left. Six finger widths beneath the navel. Central one ended four, these end six beneath the navel. Hmm. Then when we What we do is uh, you imagine you hold your left nostril closed with the fourth finger of the left hand. And we <laughs> you breathe in slowly through the left nostril through the right nostril, I'm sorry. And then with the right hand, you hold the right nostril close with the fourth finger and breathe out through the left nostril. So you do that three times. Although actually I find it quite a little bit easier to just use the same hand for, you know, closing each of the uh, nostrils rather than switching hands. A little bit distracting having the hands move all the time. It is a little bit easier. Anyway, the actual instructions is uh, you shut the left nostrils with the left hand. When you shut the right nostril, it's with the right hand. So in the right, out the left three times. Then in the left and out the right three times. And then with your hands back down in your lap, in both nostrils and out both nostrils three times. 
time we breathe slowly, uh, but without holding the breath. So when we're doing the visualization, then the, uh, when we breathe in the uh, right and out the left, we imagine the lower end of the right is stuck into the lower end of the left and what we're clearing out from the left channel is the energy wind of the disturbing emotion of longing desire мы воображаем, как из левого канала очищаются с этим дыханием, стоком праны, выходят моченые эмоции властный дизайн, страсти, вожделения, привязанности. And when we breathe in the left and out the right, then the channels are reversed. The left one is into the right one, and we breathe out from the, the energy that was blocked in the right channel, which is of anger. И когда мы вдыхаем через левую ноздрю, а вдыхаем через правую, то каналы ставка меняет, да теперь левый ставлен правый, и то, что очищается, это то, от чего мы очищаемся, то, что блокировало правый канал, красный, да, это различные эмоции класса отвращения, ненависти, гнева. So three times for getting the blocked energy of desire out, three times for out of the left, three times for getting the uh, blocked energy of anger out of the right channel. And then you imagine the two, the lower ends of the two channels are both sticking into the central channel now curved up and sticking into the central channel the bottom end of the central channel and when we breathe in through both nostrils we imagine that the air comes in to the central channel and it expels as we breathe out the blocked energy of naivety and that leaves us at the end of the central channel which is at the middle of our brow and when we breathe in we imagine that uh, we breathe in white light and when we breathe out the blocked energy literally it says that we visualize it as black light which of course light can't be black but at least dark now, this is a rather complicated visualization and it can be quite 
distracting if we're not uh, familiar with visualization. And it could make us even more nervous and upset trying to get the visualization correct than it is worthwhile. The important thing here is not the visualization. So unless we are already fairly well trained with visualization and it comes very easy to us, I would recommend forget about the visualization at the beginning and just do the uh, nine rounds without worrying about the color and the size of the channels and this sort of stuff. But obviously, if we are able to do the visualization, then it is a stronger practice. Okay, so why don't we try this? And I will lead it since we might not remember <laughs> how to do it yet. Now, usually when we sit down to do meditation, I must say that uh, the first instant that you sit down to start doing this might be a bit too much. So it is often just helpful to just sit for a few moments until we settle down. Just focusing on the breath coming in and out. But for not too long, just for a few moments, just so that we settle. And we uh, start with uh, closing the left nostril with our left hand, fourth finger. And we breathe slowly uh, through the left nostril through the right nostril. <laughs> Not easy to describe without getting left and right mixed up. And then, switching hands, uh, we breathe out the left nostril. So we're going to do that three times. So without holding the breath.
and actually, although it's not really described very uh, thoroughly, or at least I haven't seen it described, uh, again, I find it very distracting if you have to lift your hands up and down, up and down, uh, nine times like that, or six times, whatever it is. And so, if we're going to do it with both hands like this, then it seems to be easier to leave both hands up. If not, just do it with one hand. After all, this is intended to help us to quiet down and relax. So you don't want to be too busy <laughs> doing this. Defeats the purpose. Okay, so having done in the left and out the, the uh, in the right and out the left, then now you use the right hand to uh, block the right nostril in the left and out the right three times. And breathe slowly, not quickly, not to fill yourself fully with the breath. And then breathe, we put our hands back down in the meditation posture and breathe slowly through both nostrils and then out both nostrils. Okay, those are the nine rounds of breath. And so in the right, out the left, and in the left, out the right, and then in both, and out both nostrils. First get rid of the blocked energy of desire, then of anger, then of naivety. Then once we've uh, completed that, those nine uh, rounds or nine tastes of breath, literally, then the instructions say don't repeat it, only do it once. Uh, 
If we still have gross mental wandering, then we would follow another method. We breathe in and out both nostrils silently, not forcefully, with the in-breath the same length as the out-breath. And we count each round of uh, breath up to 21. And there are many var- variations on this. It could be up to 11, it could be up to 7, it could be up to 21. Here, the, in case you target, explained it as 21. Because hmm. if we have to focus on both the breath and keeping count of the breath, then that leaves uh, not very much thought for other, not very much room for other thoughts. So the point is to quiet down before we start our meditation. Any questions on the breathing? Also, you know, when we are trying to gain shamatha, it's very important to try to get the conducive place for doing this. And there's all sorts of instructions about what would be a proper place for doing retreat. It would be very difficult to gain shamatha if we were not in a retreat situation. Because we want to be able to focus totally on just the meditation. But that doesn't mean that we can't meditate outside of a retreat situation. But to minimize distraction, it's best to meditate either very early in the morning when we first get up before we've actually gotten involved in the activities of the day, or at night after we finish all the activities of the day, but not right in the middle of the day when you're just taking a break from your activities. There's too much distraction thinking about what your daily activities are.
Some people are more alert in the morning. Some people are more alert at night. We have to judge for ourselves. When is the best time for us to meditate? Ideally, we should be able to meditate both times. Also, it's best to meditate not immediately after eating, because right after we eat, we tend to get dull. Then after we have quieted down with these breathing meditations, we do the preparatory practices as has been discussed already. And for this, there is, of course, starting with safe direction or refuge and bodhicitta. There are verses that we can recite for this, but it's very easy to get into the habit of reciting a verse and it's just blah, 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 especially if it's in a language that we don't understand. But even if it's in a language we do understand, it still is very easy for it to just be blah, blah, blah and have no feeling at all. Therefore, it is important to really try to generate some sincere feeling of actually putting this direction in our life, of actually aiming with bodhicitta to reach enlightenment for the benefit of everyone. Now, how to do this? This is uh, not so easy for many of us, particularly when we have a limited time for meditation because we are busy. We have a busy schedule, we don't want to be late for work. But it is more worthwhile to actually get that strong sense of refuge or safe direction in bodhicitta than it is to meditate without that at all. In other words, having that strong intention, having that strong direction in mind, having that strong motivation, even a little bit of meditation is very helpful. It works. It's effective toward enlightenment. Without having any of that and just meditating for a long time, that will just go into the samsara folder. 
но в то же время следует помнить то, что медитация, выполняемая без такой искренней почувствованной просветления, без принятия этого верного направления, приведущая, явится лишь, опять же, водой на мельницу сансар. Если же мы сможем породить в себе, потратив некоторое время усилия, устремленность до причины и принятие прибежища, даже краткое время медитации является весьма эффективным и пойдет в копилку причин к просветлению. Поэтому не экономьте время на порождение практик, предварительных мыслей а за счет основной медитации. Uses a method which I don't know if he was actually taught by some lama this method or whether he made it up himself, but uh, it seems to be quite helpful. He had gone on pilgrimage to Bodhgaya. And found it very, very inspiring. In Bodhgaya, you have this uh, huge stupa and the Bodhi tree, at least well, something that grew from the, the previous Bodhi tree, under which Buddha became enlightened. So it's a very inspiring, very moving place, tremendous energy there. And he imagines being there in Bodhgaya and he sits down and meditates and imagines circumambulating the stupa and sitting on, you know, before the tree and in this way then taking very sincere refuge and developing bodhicitta because visualizing this type of situation helps to bring on this strong feeling more sincerely. Now, we do have similar practices that are taught traditionally. In which we imagine that we are in a pure land and we are sitting in front of the tree of assembled gurus and the Buddha and all this sort of thing, very, very complicated visualization. And in that context, we take refuge and develop bodhicitta. So there is this practice. But again, 
if we have a very complicated visualization, then we can get very uptight trying to visualize it and spend all our effort in trying to get the visualization accurate and clear and very little time on actually developing the motivation. Но если визуализация столь сложна и столь детальна, то опять же она может иметь а, противоположный эффект на нас, а, вызывая в нас какое-то напряжение, вызывая в нас а, возбуждение. Если мы не способны выполнить должным образом и светлости, то она может иметь как противоположный эффект напрягая нас. So what my student does is instead of trying to visualize Buddha field, pure land, and these complicated trees, and stuff like that, he uses something that he's actually experienced, which is Bodhgaya and the tree there. Mind you, he doesn't visualize all the beggars and lepers and the pigs and shit and stuff in the fields, but uh, just in an ideal way. Уровень визуализировать то же самое, то есть без всяких сложных визуализаций он пытается представить себе то или себя в той обстановке, в которой он в этой жизни побывал, и то, что ему, так сказать, близко, доступно и понятно, он визуализирует себя под этим деревом водки, со всеми вдохновляющими аспектами этого места, уступы просветления, не визуализируя, конечно, всех поберушек, нищих, прокаженных овец, кост, свиней и так далее, всего того, что вокруг этой территории вращается. Right, I don't think there are mosquitoes in Buddha Pure Land. <laughs> but in any case, he uses something which is much more real to him and much more inspiring than some sort of ideal visualization that's just too difficult to do. And this can be very effective. You know, when we visualize our spiritual teacher, our root guru, usually we're always supposed to be visualizing uh, him or her in the form of uh, either Buddha Shakyamuni or some sort of Buddha figure. But Sirkin Rinpoche advised that in doing, for instance, the Kalachakra Guru Yoga practice, that if it's difficult for us to visualize His Holiness the Dalai Lama as Kalachakra, if we've received the initiation from His Holiness, then we can just visualize His Holiness in his usual form, but I mean in an ideal form, not having a cold or anything like that. То мы можем просто визуализировать его в его собственной форме, ну, конечно, в идеализированной форме, там не простывшего и And we actually find this type of practice in the Shangba Kargyu tradition, in which 
uh, unlike in the Gluk tradition, they uh, or in Karma Kargyu or Nyingma or Sakya, when they uh, instructs us to visualize the Guru for Guru Yoga, you visualize in the actual form of the Guru, not as a Buddha figure. So there is this uh, tradition, and it can be much more effective in moving our hearts. The whole point is to move your feeling, get some inspiration. Imagining that we are in a pure land, by the way, is helpful in turn, you know, whether we, you know, have some, who knows what type of vision we have of what a pure land looks like, but uh, whether it's like something painted on a tanka or whether it's an ideal vision of Bodh Gaya, the point is that it's in a situation in which everything is conducive for intense meditation, which means that when we're meditating, we forget about you know, the traffic noise outside or, you know, dirty wall or whatever it might be. And just imagine that everything is conducive. One of the biggest distractions in meditation can be complaining. That, oh, you know, I wish I could be in another place and it wasn't so noisy and it wasn't the smell and, and so on. That's a, a big distraction. So we just sort of dismiss that. And imagine, okay, everything is cool, everything is fine. <laughs> Also, what is very helpful and important and emphasized as a preparation, not here, but in other contexts, is that before we meditate, we actually clean our meditation room and make some offerings, at least water bowls. Uh, 
we sweep the floor and have everything in order around us, not our dirty underwear on the floor, uh, but everything neat and orderly, then that affects the mind as well. The mind will be more neat and orderly if there's chaos around us that affects the mind. Also, by cleaning the room and by just sweeping the floor and uh, having, you know, picking up everything and having some water bowls arranged in front of some either picture or painting or statue of a Buddha we're showing respect to what we're doing and that also is very important. And visualization of our guru in front of us Uh, we uh, take refuge in the safe direction, bodhicitta, for building up the two networks and the purification we usually do. The simplest thing would be the seven-part practice and then request to the guru, guru comes to the top of your head and dissolves into you. Okay, so we have a few more minutes left, according to my watch, which is probably slow. But in any case, if you have some questions... It is too sharp. <laughs> Any quick questions? The questions are quick. It's the answers that have to be quick. <laughs> yeah. with which you can view any kind of object. So, because you were saying that shamatha with respect to the absolute nature, like uh, emptiness in the mind, or shamatha with respect to the conventional nature. So, we should, in this context, we should view it just as the binoculars, which is taken to view something, yeah? Right. I, do we, to just repeat in case I didn't get on the uh, recording. Do we view shamatha just as binoculars, as a tool to enable us to then uh, stay with perfect concentration on the nature of the mind? Yes, that is so. Both shamatha and vipassana are not necessarily Buddhist practices, 
both of them are found in non-Buddhist practices, and particularly in India. What makes them a Buddhist practice is if they are done within the context of safe direction or refuge and it makes them Mahayana practice if it's done as a method for helping us to reach enlightenment with the motivation of bodhicitta. So shamatha is merely a tool, not an end in itself, that we can use then for staying totally focused with a sense of fitness on any, you know, object that would be help us on the way to liberation or enlightenment here particularly the conventional and deepest nature of the mind and Vipassana is also just a tool that we have in addition to the shamatha that the mind is totally fit to be able to discern and understand everything in all its details here particularly nature of the mind the conventional and deepest nature Mm-hmm. Good. There are many, many things in Buddhism which are not specifically Buddhist. But which we find in common with so many other Indian traditions and even with non-Indian traditions, like aiming for a better rebirth. That's certainly not Buddhist. So, what makes things distinctively Buddhist and very important always to emphasize, and Penchen Lama does it here in the text, is refuge in bodhicitta. Bodhicitta making it Mahayana. Okay, let's end here. And Whatever positive forces come from this may it act as a cause for reaching enlightenment for the benefit of everyone.